John 10, 1 through 21, now. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters the door by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down from my own, of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And as Elder Mark mentioned, we're going to be continuing on in our scripture reading in John chapter 10. So if you still have your Bibles handy, you can put that in front of your eyes and let's pick up where we left off. John chapter 10. We'll read from verses 22 to 42. God's word. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. 
I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even, if though, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me for a moment? Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that we have this testimony, this amazing witness, this true witness of the good shepherd Jesus Christ. Thank you that he knows us and we can know him. That through him we know you and we can hear your voice. So Spirit of God, would you speak today? Take up your word, plant it deep in our hearts and cause it to bear much fruit in our lives. Give us ears to hear the good shepherd calling to us and give us faith, good faith, to respond to him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There's um, a pastime that my wife and I have enjoyed doing during the pandemic, and it's watching true crime documentaries. And from the sheer abundance of them on TV, I'd imagine that we're probably not all that unique. Maybe you enjoy them as well. But there are a couple that recently came out that were on the topic of counterfeit currency. And if you've ever watched this particular kind of uh, true crime documentary, uh, it's really, really fascinating. Not just learning how people actually perpetrate these kinds of crimes, but for me, even more so, discovering how authorities are able to catch them. And uh, there was one interview in particular that I recall where a forensics expert was describing the kind of training that he received in order to become uh, facile and, and able to spot a counterfeit bill. And uh, there was something he said that was really simple yet really profound. And it was that the most important thing in learning how to spot a counterfeit is getting to know the real thing. That if you want to get good at spotting a counterfeit, the best thing you can do to prepare and to train for that is to become that much more acquainted with and familiar with real currency. 
Now, the great riddle of John's gospel, which we've seen so far as we've been trekking through this book, is simply this question. Is Jesus really the Christ? Is he really the Messiah, the Son of God and Savior of Israel? Over the past several weeks, we've seen how various groups have come up with their own ways to answer this question. And true to reality, the reactions to Jesus' claims and works have been kind of a mixed bag, haven't they? From outright rejection to kind of cautious curiosity and ambivalence to good faith, as we saw last Sunday. But there's also been this nagging kind of twist throughout the gospel as well. And it's that the people who you would think are most likely to understand and accept Jesus, the religious experts, actually turn out to be the ones who are most opposed to him. And likewise, it's the least likely, the theologically shaky, the socially, mar- the socially marginalized, the, the ceremonially unclean, who end up coming to believe in him and that even against the odds. As early as chapter 5, we've seen the religious authorities essentially trolling Jesus all throughout the region. They're trying to trap him as he ministers to the lame, the hungry, and the blind, and to expose him as what they think he is, a lawbreaker. And here in chapter 10, we come to the last direct confrontation that John records for us between Jesus and his opponents before he begins his final circuit towards Jerusalem and to his death. But as Elder Mark read for us earlier, even in this tense exchange, Jesus offers one last appeal to this group whom John refers to simply as the Jews, a group that seems to at least start off somewhat inquisitive about who he really is. And this is his appeal. The only way to spot a counterfeit Christ is to know the real Christ. In other words, if you don't want to get hoodwinked or misled by a false savior, then get to know the true savior well enough that you can judge for yourself. Jesus knows that with the window closing on meaningful dialogue, there's really only one irreducible choice left for this Jewish audience to make. And we see it in verses 37 and 38. If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, Even though you do not believe me yet, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. He's saying if you want to know whose word to place your trust and hope in, whether Jesus is on the one hand or the religious establishments on the other, examine the evidence and see for yourself which is real and which is the counterfeit. And to illustrate this, Jesus uses the familiar imagery of a shepherd with his sheep. Now, in God's wisdom, what Jesus is saying here couldn't be more relevant, either for the Jews that first heard these words or for us today. See, for Jewish people living in Second Temple Palestine, every day under Roman occupation was a fresh reminder of failed or unrealized national leadership. In fact, John tells us in verse 22 that it was the Feast of Dedication, or Hanukkah, which, as it so happens, is being celebrated right now by Jewish communities all across the world. But if you're unfamiliar with the holiday, Hanukkah is a a cultural celebration of 
the temple being rededicated following the victory of Judas Maccabeus over the, Greco the Greco-Syrians in 164 BC. Yet this victory, of course, would be only short-lived and would fall far short of restoring Israel to its former glory. Not only that, but all throughout the intertestamental period, the, the period of centuries between the last canonized Old Testament book and the coming of Jesus, there was no shortage of self-styled messianic personalities that would crop up from time to time and incite hopes for revolution, only to fizzle out just as quickly. And by the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, what you have in the Jewish community is a long-standing vacuum of leadership, which has been dubiously filled by a religious bureaucratic class consisting of academics, clerics, and politicians. So it's not hard to imagine the kind of tension that must have existed in the first century Jewish psyche. This intense longing for a national hero to save them, mingled with an equally intense leeriness of anyone who might claim to be that hero. And friends, are we so different today? In an episode of the Christianity Today podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, journalist Mike Cosper raises the piercing question, and I'll paraphrase it for us here. What is it about modern churchgoers that makes us so prone to buy into cults of personality and celebrity church cultures, even when they show so many signs of toxicity and dysfunction? Could it be that with the postmodern erosion of trust in tradition, systems, and institutions, we've redirected our hope towards personalities and celebrity figures who, even if they seem to contradict certain biblical parameters for healthy leadership, by sheer assertion of power, they're able to force their way into a deep yearning we feel just to be led by someone. Friends, I believe that it's into such a climate as this that the shepherd king Jesus still speaks. As the creator and caretaker of our souls, no one, no one is more jealous to protect and to rescue us from counterfeit saviors than him. Even before the fall of man, God's design for us as created beings was to be dependent, or as Cornelius Van Til puts it, to live analogically or derivatively before him. The Bible says that all of us, from the most vulnerable to the most ruggedly individualistic, are hardwired for dependence on God, to need to be taken care of by him, to be shepherded by him. And when we displace that need and seek our security, our salvation, our shalom in anyone or anything other than him, whether a political party or leader, a coach or a mentor, a pastor or a spiritual authority, we've essentially made counterfeit shepherds out of them. And it's only a matter of time before they fail us. Yet right in the middle of this, Jesus' invitation comes to us today. The shepherd we've been longing for has come. Jesus himself is that real shepherd who alone passes the test of authenticity over against all the counterfeit shepherds of this world. So, what is it about Jesus that makes him the real shepherd we need? We'll answer that in three ways. Jesus is the true shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. 
And Jesus is the divine shepherd. First, Jesus is the true shepherd. We know this because Jesus knows his sheep and his sheep know him. And Jesus leads his sheep and his sheep follow him. We'll tackle those two sub-points in turn. Jesus knows his sheep and his sheep know him. He spells this out plainly in verse 14 and then again in verse 27. But before that, in verses 1 to 5, he gives us a picture of what it means to know and be known by him. Jesus paints a scenario that would have been probably pretty familiar to his original audience. It's a picture where in a single sheepfold, you see multiple shepherds' flocks together, kind of like an ancient sheep share. And when each shepherd would come to retrieve his own sheep, the only way he'd be able to do so is if he knew each one and called them out by name. So Jesus says that the first way for sheep to recognize their true shepherd is if he enters through the door and calls them by name. Now, while on the surface this might seem kind of like an enigmatic statement, it doesn't really make sense to us, especially those of us in, uh, who haven't had much experience with shepherding or sheep. But in its context, I believe the text allows us to draw out at least this point that the true shepherd will never violate your personhood or agency through deceptive tactics. The true shepherd will never violate your personhood or agency through deceptive tactics. Rather, when the true shepherd comes into your life, he'll always do so in a way that upholds your dignity as a person and honors your agency in responding to his voice. Not so with the thief and robber. This anti-shepherd sneaks his way into the fold and seizes the sheep against their will. As a stranger, he impersonates the true shepherd in an attempt to lure the sheep away from the fold. In his recent book, Something's Not Right, Decoding the Hidden Tactics of Abuse and Freeing Yourself from Its Power, author Wade Mullen does an excellent job of delineating some of the common ways that abusers seek to gain psychological and spiritual control over their victims. First, there are what Mullen calls charms, which include flattery, favors, and alliances offered by the abuser so as to disarm and groom his victim and secure her loyalty. This usually leads to the next step, which Mullen calls dismantling your inner world, where the abuser then proceeds to disable his victim's capacity to think critically using tactics like gaslighting and shaming to trap the victim in perpetual self-doubt. One online book reviewer sums it up this way. They try to rename you in a sense, taking your self-respect. A person who believes they have the right to redefine you will also feel the freedom to humiliate you. In all this, they dismantle your agency. Now, the book goes into far more detail from there, and I encourage you to read it for yourself if you're interested in learning more. There's actually one copy on the resource shelf in the copy room for anyone who'd like to pick that up on their way out. Uh, I guess that would be first come, first serve. And if it's gone by the end of today, maybe I'll order more. But there's also a a wealth of new, uh, relatively new resources that are coming out on this topic. And if you'd like to get your hands on any of them, please let either me or Pastor Billy know, and we'd love to get those into your hands. But Mullen's description here is an example of the contrast 
this stark contrast that I believe Jesus is making for us. Unlike the thief and robber who secretly seeks to gain illegitimate ownership over the sheep without their agency, Jesus, the true shepherd, enters through the front door in plain view, dignifying each sheep with her name and calling her to follow him out of her own accord. Friend, Jesus is the true shepherd because he knows his sheep and his sheep know him. A knowledge that's far more than cognitive data, but a deep, intimate connection built on trust and mutual honor. Jesus knows his sheep and his sheep know him and that makes him uniquely the true shepherd. But secondly, Jesus leads his sheep and his sheep follow him. We see this both in how he leads his sheep and where he leads them to. Not only does the true shepherd call out to his sheep by name, but notice in verse 4 how he then leads them out of the fold. And for us, this is kind of a cultural shift that needs to take place because unlike Western shepherds who use their staff and sometimes they use sheepdogs to drive their flocks from behind them, Near Eastern shepherds, even to this day, go before the flock and, drive, and draw them forward with the sound of their voice. And it's this image of shepherding that far better depicts the way the true shepherd leads his flock. Rather than driving the sheep ahead of him, where they risk wandering off or getting picked off by predators, the true shepherd leads the way personally, protecting the sheep from whatever lay ahead, while trusting they'll follow him because they know his voice. How different this is from a leader who, perhaps operating within a corporate organizational model, will follow a leadership trajectory that removes him progressively further away from the rank and file of his organization, making him virtually inaccessible to the very people he's supposed to be shepherding. And perhaps this is why there's some appeal in shows like The Undercover Boss, where employees are shocked to find that their CEO would be found mingling with the likes of them. And sometimes in some episodes, when the big review, after the big reveal even happens, some of these employees don't even recognize their CEO because they've never even seen them. And just as an aside, there's something to be said for this model of leadership out in the world, especially in a capitalist economy where Large companies especially need some form of organizational hierarchy in order to be competent and competitive. But when it comes to leading the church, I think this text challenges all church leaders to ask whether their model meets this vision that Jesus is giving us of how shepherding happens. But back to the text. John tells us in verse 6 that this imagery, it's actually getting lost on the listeners. They're not quite getting what he's cooking. So Jesus follows up with another figure of speech, and he twice refers to himself as the door of the sheep. Now, to our modern sensibilities, it might seem like Jesus is mixing metaphors here. He's describing himself both as a shepherd of sheep and a door to the sheepfold, and it can be confusing. But his point here is not to allegorize or even to tell a parable. Rather, he's describing himself as both the door and the shepherd to elaborate on the purpose of his leadership. In other words, Jesus doesn't call himself our shepherd so that he can claim some title of leadership 
or status over us. No, the true shepherd's purpose is to lead his sheep to salvation and abundant life. It's where he leads them to. Now, what does this salvation and abundant life look like? Well, it looks like many things, but let's just consider two from this text. Verse 9, he says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. What he's saying is that the salvation that the true shepherd brings leads to freedom from fear. How do you know you're following a true shepherd? Here's a diagnostic question for us. How do you know that the shepherd you're following is a true shepherd? Well, ask yourself, in following him or her, do I find myself regularly feeling nervous, intimidated, or pressured? Do I not feel free to be in their presence and be myself, to express my opinions, or perhaps even to fail at times for fear of being punished in some way? Beloved, the going in and out and finding pasture that Jesus promises us here is a vision of freedom. Freedom from fear. Freedom from spiritual captivity. Freedom that the true shepherd alone provides. Yet not so with a thief. The thief and anti-shepherd comes only to steal the sheep's freedom, to kill and destroy their spirit for their personal gain and power. But the true shepherd came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The salvation that the true shepherd brings leads not only to freedom from fear, but it leads to human flourishing. You see that in verse 10. So let me ask you again. Here's another diagnostic question. How do you know you're following a true shepherd? Well, ask yourself, does following him or her seem to bring out the worst in me far more than the best? Does his or her shepherding highlight my weaknesses, sins, and faults more than my strengths, my gifts, and God's grace in my life? Does this shepherd empower me to grow in faith, not out of compulsion or coercion, but genuine love and gratitude? Beloved, the abundant life that Jesus came to bring is none other than what we read about in Psalm 23. We all know it well, don't we? It's a life characterized not by joyless, listless duty or self-loathing, but a life brimming over with rest, refreshment, and rehumanization. What's more, it's a life of flourishing that can never be taken away, as Jesus tells us in verse 28. Friends, we can know that Jesus is the true shepherd because he leads us to green pastures and still waters, the kind of places to which any sheep would gladly follow him. Now, as great as all this sounds, everything Jesus has said so far is actually simply the job description of any shepherd worth his name. After all, to know and lead the sheep is just what shepherds are supposed to do, isn't it? But it's what Jesus says about himself next that begins to unravel all our earthbound conceptions of what a shepherd should be or do. Because he's not just any shepherd. He's not just the true shepherd. But secondly, Jesus is the good shepherd. Now, what does he mean by this? Two things. First, there's such thing as a bad shepherd. And while we've already considered certain general aspects of bad shepherding, There's no better description that Scripture provides for us than in Ezekiel chapter 34, 
verses 1 to 10. It's a passage that most commentators believe casts its shadow over Jesus' teaching in John 10. And if you have a Bible, you can turn there if you'd like. I'm just going to read a portion of that. Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered, because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered, they wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth, with none to search or seek for them. Jesus is the good shepherd that Israel needed, but had been suffering for so long for lack of. But secondly, notice Jesus doesn't refer to himself simply as a good shepherd. By good, he's not just describing his quality of work or even his moral perfection in this passage. Recently, my family and I discovered a great scenic drive And it's about 45 minutes from our neighborhood in Springfield all the way down to Dale City. And we got to drive it twice during the fall months. The first time we went, the leaves were just beginning to peak. And so we were out on these country roads and just flanked on all sides by fiery reds and oranges and yellows. It was amazing. But the second time we took this drive, we were a little bit late. And most of the leaves had already begun to fall, leaving behind these barren, hollow wood, wooded trees. And as I reflected on it, it reminded me that as beautiful and magnificent as these leaves were in their appearance, the good that they ultimately do transcends their appearance. That these leaves, as beautiful as they are, they needed to die in order to make way for new life to come forth in the spring. And that's what Jesus is getting at in verses 11 to 15. What makes him the uniquely good shepherd is the fact that he alone lays down his life for his sheep. Commentator Leon Morris, he says this, there's a passage, or he he points out that there's a passage in the Mishnah, which is a part of the Talmud, which is a compilation of Jewish regulations that was uh, being used at the time of Jesus and his apostles in the Jewish community. But there's a portion that grants permission for shepherds to abandon their flock when it comes under attack by two or more wolves. And this is what we should expect from the kind of hired hand described in verses 12 and 13, whose interest in the sheep is understandably mercenary and self-motivated. But not only that, when you stop and think about it, isn't the whole purpose of shepherding to cultivate the sheep to be fleeced and eventually slaughtered? Why is it then that this shepherd will lay down his life for his sheep and that of his own accord? What's so good about that? A movie that I caught on a flight recently, which quickly became one of my favorites, is the movie Pig. And if you haven't seen it yet and you're hoping to, I won't spoil it for you. I'm going to do my best. But it's a story about a truffle hunter who lives out in the Oregonian wilderness. And one day, 
some people break into his house and they make off with his foraging pig. And so the, the bulk of the movie is uh, us following this truffle hunter on this wild quest to recover his truffle pig. And he goes through all kinds of ordeals. He gets beaten up, he makes enemies, he's having to confront a past that he's been trying for years to run away from. And you're wondering, what's the big deal? Why? Is, what, what are we missing that would explain why he's going through all this for a truffle pig? And there's this pivotal moment where he's sitting with his associate who's been helping him along the way. And he tells him, you know, I don't need the pig to find truffles. Uh, the trees, the trees actually let you know where to find them. And this associate is just beside himself because they've been through all kinds of misery in an attempt to find this pig. And he says, what? Then why did we have to go through all of this? To which the man answers, I love her. I love her. Why did Jesus, the good shepherd, willingly lay down his life for his sheep? Beloved, the first and truest answer is because he loves us. He loves us because he loves us. Do you believe this? See, for many of us who have been in church for a long time, we might hear Jesus saying that he's the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, and immediately our theological gears start churning. And faster than you can say substitutionary atonement, we've already calculated the formula of the gospel in our heads, and we're on to the next thing. But when was the last time you sat and simply marinated in the sheer wonder, the absolute freedom of Christ's love for you? Yes, we do need to know that our sin was the reason he had to die. Isaiah 53, 6, we know it well. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But don't you know, dear friend, that the reason your good shepherd endured that for you was because he genuinely wanted to do it for you. Jesus makes clear in verse 18 that the cross was not a tragedy. Jesus was not a martyr. But neither was the cross simply a transaction. Jesus is the good shepherd we need because he alone did what no other shepherd could ever do, what no other shepherd would ever do. He laid down his life for his sheep, and he did it because he loved you. Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the true shepherd. But lastly, Jesus is the divine shepherd. Now, I know I just mentioned verse 18 in passing a moment ago, but there's something about it, as well as verse 17, that I think deserves a closer look as we draw to a close. Because at almost every point that Jesus speaks of himself laying down his life for his sheep, he also mentions the Father. Namely, that it was the Father's will for Jesus to lay down his life and that he loves him for doing so. Which raises the question, at least for me, did Jesus go to the cross of his own accord or did he do it in obedience to the Father? To which the answer is a resounding yes. And the reason for that, I believe, is found in six simple words in verse 30. I and the Father are one. Jesus is the real shepherd we need, not only because he's true and good, but because he is God. 
In the mystery of the Trinity, God the Son is so united to God the Father in their essence and their will that Christ's decision to lay down his life of his own accord out of his free and genuine love for us is itself perfectly aligned with the Father's will and pleasure. And while this is an eternal mystery that we'll never fully understand, it's clear from the Jews' response that they understood well enough what Jesus meant by it. At first they're torn, thinking that maybe he's insane or demon-possessed. But by verse 31, they've heard enough, and they're ready to stone him on a charge of blasphemy. Yet Jesus holds out his appeal to them to the bitter end, quoting Psalm 82, 6, to show them how far they've drifted from the heart of God, even as they sought to honor him. But dear friends, it was the heart of God all along to be himself the divine shepherd his people need. Do you remember that description of bad shepherding from Ezekiel 34? If you want, you can turn there again. But if you look a little bit further down, beginning in verse 11, listen to what it says there. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall, their, shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land. And on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed. And I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Friends, in Jesus, God has come to do a job that only God can do. That all of the earthly and would-be shepherds of this world could never even dream to achieve. To fulfill that deep longing, that ache in all of our souls, to be shepherded, to be led by, to be taken care of by another. To know that no matter what happens, it's going to be okay. That he's taking care of us. That nothing can ever snatch us out of his hand. What kind of shepherd does that need to be? Well, friends, it's none other than God himself. Jesus is that divine shepherd who fulfills Ezekiel 34 for us. He makes good on God's promise to personally come down and to tend to his sheep and save them. Dear friend, how will you respond to the good shepherd today? As you've witnessed his works and weighed his claims, do you recognize his voice calling out to you? As you hold him up, against all other would-be shepherds in your life? Are you able to see which is genuine and which are the counterfeits? Whatever your journey of faith has looked like till now, may you be able to say, like those we read about at the end of our passage today, everything that John said about this man was true.
Let's pray. Our great, our true, our good, our divine shepherd, thank you that you love your sheep. Thank you that you love us when we're most unlovable, when we're straying, when we're wandering, when we're getting ourselves into all kinds of trouble. Isn't that when you do some of your finest work? Father, we've seen it in our lives, and we see it in your word. You are the shepherd we need so desperately. We all, in our own ways, have given ourselves over to bad shepherding, to false leaderships, to counterfeits, to cheap imposters, in the hopes that somehow they would fulfill what only you can fulfill. Yet who else would lay down his life for the unworthy, for the helpless, but you? Jesus, we thank you that you went to the cross for us. We remember during this season of Advent why you came. It was to be our beautiful our soul-restoring, our humanizing, our dignifying shepherd. But it was to be that ultimately on the way to your death for our sins. And so because of that good news, we take heart today. We cling to you. We follow after your voice wherever you would lead us. Because we know that in the end it leads to wide-open vistas, new horizons, freedom from fear. It leads to plenty and abundance. It leads to your kingdom. So receive our faith as you've given it to us to believe upon you and be glorified in our lives this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.